Around this time last year, I made plans to preach a sermon today for Asian American Heritage Month, inspired by the book, The Making of Asian America by Erica Lee, who's a professor of history at the University of Minnesota. I didn't know at that time that learning to better understand the history of Asian Americans would feel far more relevant to current events than I could have imagined. A year ago, I couldn't have predicted the sharp increase of anti-Asian discrimination, bullying, and xenophobia that has arisen in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. So let me just say explicitly what should be common sense, but too often is not. Asian Americans are, of course, not responsible for either the Chinese government's or the U.S. government's mismanagement of the COVID-19 response. The large numbers of Asian Americans on the front lines of combating the pandemic make coronavirus-related bigotry against Asian Americans even more ironic and offensive. Although the 19.5 million Asian Americans in this country today comprise only 6% of the population, Asian Americans make up 18% of our country's uh, physicians, sort of three times what you might expect, and 10% of our country's nurse practitioners. To highlight one other essential point that, again, should be common sense, but too often is not, in the words of the social justice activist George Takai, Asian Americans are Americans. Certain segments of the Asian American community have been here since the 1840s. Takai says, you know, for many of his Chinese-American friends, he says it's their great-great-grandparents that came from China. As for Takai himself, where is he from? Yes, he's a Japanese-American, but he would tell you that he's from Los Angeles, California, USA. That's where he was born. That's where he grew up. I remember the first time a similar truth really struck home for me for the first time. I was at a week-long orientation to serve as a summer camp counselor in North Carolina, and I was introduced to a fellow counselor there who was Chinese-American. But when he opened his mouth for the first conversation of many that we had this summer, he had one of the strongest Southern accents I've ever heard. And getting to know him over the course of that summer, it became clear that he identified as being from Mississippi. Before moving on, let me say one more word about George Takai. And let me show you a photo that may, uh, I think some of you know exactly who I'm talking about. For others of you, this may help. George Takai is best known for being cast in 1965 to play the Star Trek character, Lieutenant Sulu. But it is also significant to know that more than two decades earlier, in 1942, when Takai was five years old, the, U- the United States government imprisoned both George and his parents, all U.S. citizens, in internment camps during World War II. Takai has shared that even after their release three years later, he says our bank accounts were taken. Our home was taken, our business was gone, and the only place we could find housing was on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles, which to us kids, he says, I mean, I was only eight then. That was as traumatic as the day the soldiers came and took us away.
a few weeks ago, as we reflected on the anniversary of the Kent State shooting as a sacred story of sacrilege, a story of desecration that reminds us of what it looks like when there's a violation of what our UU first principle calls the inherent worth and dignity of every person without exception. Such stories stir within us, calling us to do everything in our power to prevent such a desolating sacrilege from happening again. In the case of Kent State, that tragedy reminds us to do everything we can to prevent loaded rifles from ever again being issued to soldiers confronting student demonstrators. That story is newly relevant regarding calls in this very moment to use military force against the racial justice uprisings around the country. Likewise, the wrongful imprisonment of Japanese Americans during World War II is another sacred story of sacrilege. Imprisoning approximately 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry, two-thirds of them U.S. citizens, in concentration camps without trial for no other crime than the ethnicity one is born with, that is one of World War II's greatest human rights atrocities. The internment camps were often hastily refurbished fairgrounds or racetracks. The inmates were kept in former animal stalls and barracks. Barbed wire fences and guard towers surrounded the centers. Entire families were kept in rooms no bigger than 20 by 20 feet with flimsy partitions to separate one from another that offered no privacy. Inmates were forced to make their own mattresses out of bags and straw. Dining facilities and bathrooms were all communal. This was 80 years ago in the United States of America. It's also important to emphasize that official U.S. government reports from investigations into Japanese American communities prior to the internment camps stated that, quote, the vast majority of Japanese Americans are overwhelmingly loyal to the U.S. But fear, fear and racism led our government to wrongly imprison Japanese Americans anyway, just as we saw fear transmuting black bodies uh, in that Black 101 poem we heard earlier. Even more perversely, it turns out that of the 19 Americans who were arrested during World War II for serving as agents of Japan, all 19 were white. Japanese Americans were not responsible for the attack on Pearl Harbor then, and Chinese Americans are not responsible for this mismanagement of coronavirus in China or America today. The memory of these internment camps is a sacred story of sacrilege that calls us to resist fear-mongering, lies, and xenophobia today against Asian Americans and other minority groups. The Asian-American historian Erica Lee has said that she does take some solace from witnessing over the past few months people denouncing acts of discrimination and racism against uh, Asian-Americans, both individually and also seeing this with journalists. Taking the long view, she says, that's actually new. When the Chinese were excluded in the, Chi in the Exclusion Act of 1882, when Japanese Americans were forcibly removed from their homes in 1942, she says there was very little public response and public support for these Asian American and immigrant communities. So having a public response and amplifying um, and denouncing is really important. 
Before moving on, I want to share with you one more representative story, that of Fred Korematsu. And to do that, I want to show you a few slides. On February 19th, 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt made the reprehensible decision to sign Executive Order 9066, authorizing the Secretary of War to create internment camps. Fred Korematsu is one of a number of Japanese Americans who refused to comply with this unjust law. And within a few months, he was discovered, arrested, and imprisoned. He was 23 years old. In his words, I didn't feel guilty. I didn't do anything wrong. Every day in school, we said the pledge to the flag with liberty and justice for all. And he says, I believed all that. I was an American citizen and I had as many rights as anyone else. The ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, aided him in challenging Executive Order 9066 as unconstitutional. And the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. In December 1944, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Korematsu versus the United States that the forced incarceration of Japanese Americans was a, quote, military necessity and therefore constitutional. I should hasten to add that that majority opinion by the U.S. Supreme Court was written by Justice Hugo Black, a former member of the Ku Klux Klan in Alabama. Three justices, however, wrote a dissenting opinion stating that the internment camps were unconstitutional and that the treatment of Japanese Americans in the wake of the Pearl Harbor attacks resembled, quote, the abhorrent and despicable treatment of minority groups by dictatorial tyrannies, which this nation is now pledged to destroy. Physician, heal thyself, they were saying. Fred Korematsu died in 2015. He did not live long enough to witness that abhorrent Korematsu decision finally overturned. That was law of the land in this country until two years ago. Two years ago in the Supreme Court case Trump versus Hawaii, the Supreme Court explicitly rejected Korematsu as part of rejecting President Trump's Islamophobic anti-Muslim travel ban. But Korematsu did live long enough to be awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1998 in recognition of his lifelong advocacy for human rights. In his final years, for instance, he advocated on behalf of prisoners being held in Guantanamo Bay without trial following 9-11. And if he were alive today, I suspect we would be hearing him denounce the concentration camps on our own southern borders today, sometimes euphemistically called immigrant detention centers. But make no mistake, they are concentration camps. Now, as I begin to make my way to my conclusion, I should hasten to add a few more important points. First, although there is so much to be gained by studying Asian American history as a whole, looking at all the similarities and commonalities, it is important to acknowledge the tremendous diversity often collected under that extremely large umbrella, Asian America, that includes at least 24 distinct groups. So anytime you hear or use that word Asian American, keep in mind that it includes East Asian countries. You're talking about all of China, Japan, and South Korea, 
you're talking about all of South Asia as well, countries like India and Pakistan and Sri Lanka. You're talking about all of Southeast Asia as well, all of Thailand and Vietnam and Philippines. All of that and more is meant by Asian American. That's not even getting into the history of Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. So I readily grant that we are barely scratching the surface of the two century long history of Asian Americans. If you want to learn more, I recommend Erica Lee's book, The Making of Asian America, or if you prefer to watch instead, uh, there's a great recent uh, three-part PBS series titled Asian Americans available to stream, PBS, Google Asian Americans. I also wanted to spend, though, just a little time debunking um, the harmful stereotypes. You know, all Asians are good at math or were all raised by tiger moms. On one hand, it is true that more Asian Americans, 49%, have college degrees compared with other U.S. adults, only 28%. On the other hand, it's also true that Asians are overrepresented on the other end of the spectrum as well. A greater proportion of Asian Americans, um, 8%, have less than a ninth grade education than is common in the total U.S. population. So keep in mind when you're thinking about this broad category Asian American that the achievements in some areas of the Asian American community can mask the ways that racism and poverty and other oppressions continue to devastate other parts of the Asian American community. If you're interested in getting more involved locally, I highly recommend volunteering at our local Asian American Center of Frederick. You can see up there AACFMD or just Google Asian American Center of Frederick does incredible work under the expert leader of uh, leadership of their executive director, Elizabeth Chung, who's often involved um, here at UCF as well. And I want to end with two quick case studies um, that are sort of personal examples of how complex Asian Americans can be as an invitation, again, to really get to know someone rather than making assumptions. For instance, take the professional golfer Tiger Woods. He's often described just as Asian, after, as just African-American. But he speaks of himself as the product of two great cultures, one African-American and the other Asian. He says, I feel very proud and uh, very fortunate and equally proud to be both. Woods' mother is from Thailand and is of Thai, Chinese, and Dutch ancestry. His father is of African-American Chinese and Native American descent. Or consider Kamala Harris, the junior U.S. Senator from California. Harris, too, is often described simply as black, but the reality is more complex. Her mother immigrated from India. Uh, her father immigrated from Jamaica. Her middle name that is rarely mentioned, it's Devi, D-E-V-I. Uh, it's the Sanskrit word for goddess from the Hindu tradition. And she grew up attending both a black Baptist church and a Hindu temple. She is a member of both the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. For now, I'll close with a quote from Jose Antonio Vargas, a Filipino-American journalist and immigration rights activist. In 2013, on the 50th anniversary of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, Vargas published his undocumented immigrants version of Dr. King's speech, in which Vargas declared, I have a dream of citizenship. A dream of citizenship in a country that I call my home to a nation I want to keep contributing to. 
I have a dream of not being judged by the papers I lack, but by the content of my character and the talents and skills I offer. I have the dream of being a free human being. May we each do what we can within our spheres of influence to turn such dreams of freedom and liberty into deeds, to co-create a world of collective liberation in which we all get free. A world of peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but truly for all. Together, we can help build the world we dream about in that spirit as we discern what we feel called to do. Let's sing together.